Well, why vote? We have the general election on uh, Thursday week. We have the hustings later this week. Why vote? Why bother to vote? And um, I guess if you are somebody who doesn't quite know how to vote, then actually listening to me probably won't help you because I won't tell you how to vote because that's not my place. You have to acquire the information, filter it through your Christian framework, derive from the Bible, pray about it, and exercise your hard-won right to vote. And you'll probably be also disappointed if you happen to be a signed-up member of a particular party and you cannot see how any Christian could possibly vote for any other party than your party. You'll be disappointed because no party is perfect and we're faced with a collection of imperfect possibilities. Now, you may well be tempted to not bother to think about it or even to vote. You may be that you are disillusioned with MPs in general. You remember only too clearly a couple of years ago that the expenses scandal. You might be disillusioned with the personal morality of uh, certain MPs in particular. You might, for example, be put off by their hypocrisy. And just to give one example, and I'm not going to go through every party sort of picking out an example, but here's one from the Shadow Home Secretary, who opposes grammar schools where, based on merit, many working-class kids got out of the lower socioeconomic categories and onto Oxbridge and to running the country. In my living memory, that would apply to Prime Ministers Harold Wilson, Ted Heath, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, and now Theresa May. Not to the ones in between. But the Shadow Home Secretary paid for her son to go to an academically selective fee-paying school. That is not living by your principles. Or you may feel that none of the parties really represent your views. You may have been one of those who a couple of years ago signed the biggest petition ever, 600,000 people plus, um, and the government ignored you and went ahead implementing same-sex marriage anyway, even though it was not in any of the party's manifestos. So, you may well be um, an old-style liberal, inclined towards toleration, Live and let live. But don't force people to have to act against their conscience. Respect conscience. Do not drive a horse and cart over it. If so, you would be disappointed with the Lib Debs policy that every church school should lose its right to choose staff and pupils who agree with the school's ethos. You would be disappointed that they would uh, make it compulsory to have sex education as opposed to teaching children biology because sex education is usually ideologically driven. Um, they also voted, in effect, to close down Christian adoption agencies because such agencies wouldn't place children in same-sex partnerships. Now, you might think that a placement of a child um, for adoption should be evidence-based rather than ideological, in which case you could stack up buckets of research which would suggest that on average, a child brought up by heterosexual parents will have the best outcomes on average. They also support assisted suicide. Or you may be an old-style socialist. I don't by that mean Marxist, I mean Methodist. Cathy and I had a week's uh, break 
the week before last, we went to Northumberland, and we went uh, one evening to visit the Colemans, who used to um, be here with us, and who now live in Allendale. And Roger was telling us how, um, in their village, there are these um, brick tunnels. They're partially submerged, but they look really like, now they're all overgrown with you know, foliage, they look like kind of you know, walls, really. But they have these tunnels going right throughout the village because they were built in the 18th and 19th centuries when there was lead and silver mining there and the smelters produced toxic fumes and rather than have those fumes in the centre of the village, the tunnels took them out so that the fumes would go out onto the moors. But during that time, children were employed to scrape out the silver residue from inside the tunnels. He said the average life expectancy of a child in that village in the 18th and 19th century was six years and three quarters. And Christians were right to work towards better working conditions. It's not widely known, but I was once a member of the National Union of Knitwear and Hosiery Workers, comrades. If, um, <laughs> but in those days, you had, if you didn't join the union, you didn't get a job. So it was only for three months. And, um, but you did. You, it was a closed shop. You couldn't have a job if you didn't belong to the union. And that was mine, the knitwear and hosiery workers. Yeah, so made supermarket... Furry linings for Marks and Spencer's slippers and artificial fur rugs, yeah. I was a carder. Anyway, you can ask me what that means afterwards. But Blairite New Labour, or the ideological Marxism of the Corbynistas version of Labour, are a long way from the original aims and aspirations of the work of the hard-working and aspirational Methodist miners. Today's Labour is further to the left, more ideological, and when it was last in power, for example, passed a number of bills to our detriment. For example, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act, which legalised the creation of animal-human hybrid embryos for research. That research came to a dead end. Allowed for the creation of saviour siblings and abolished the need for a father in consideration before commencing IVF treatment. Labour MPs were whipped to support the bill as a whole, the legislation included regulation-making powers to allow the birth of genetically modified children so that a child ends up with three or four sources for its parentage. It also permitted scientists to use current stocks of donated tissues for embryo experiments, even where the original donors had not given their express consent. And the embryology bill saw a votes on lowering the upper gestational limit for abortion from 24 weeks. Labour MPs were allowed a free vote, according to their conscience. Jeremy Corbyn voted against any reduction. Or you might be both an economic and social conservative, keen on the free market and enterprise. You like their economic policy and are very pleased that it is absolutely clear that discussion and debate on homosexuality or transsexuality or any other contentious contemporary issue, just debating it, is not classified as inciting hatred. There have, though, for example, been calls to liberalise the Gender Recognition Act. So in January 2016, the Women and Equalities Committee, chaired by the Conservative candidate for the Basingstoke constituency, 
released a report calling for people to be allowed to change their legal sex without any need of medical diagnosis. The committee also called for the minimum age for changing sex to be reduced from 18 to 16 and for the legal recognition for those who self-identify as neither male nor female, known as non-binary. In other words, of course, born one sex, but diagnose themselves as being something other. Well, is that based on evidence, or is it ideology? Well, the American College of Pediatricians has a long report on transsexualism, but the brief abstract is very helpful. Its conclusion is, a review of the current literature suggests that this protocol is founded upon an unscientific gender ideology, lacks an evidence base, and violates the long-standing ethical principle, first do no harm. The College of Pediatricians also quotes from a, um, an online community of gay-affirming physicians, mental health professionals and academics with a web page entitled First Do No Harm, Youth Trans Critical Professionals, who are similarly cautious and against um, what I've just kind of mentioned that committee were proposing. They, so they write, we are concerned about the current trend to quickly diagnose and affirm young people as transgender after setting them down on a path towards medical transition. We feel that unnecessary surgeries and or hormonal treatments which have not been proven safe in the long term represent significant risks for young people. Policies that encourage either directly or indirectly such medical treatment for young people who may not be able to evaluate the risks and benefits are highly suspect in our opinion. On the other hand, if you live in uh, Bramley, Hook or Odium, the Conservative candidate there um, chaired a presentation on the need to increase the married couples allowance, which is of value of £230 a year. Why? Because presumably he's looked at the evidence and concluded that uh, stable heterosexual marriages have the best outcomes for children and cost the country a lot less money in health, education and other things. So in other words, the government is, would be wise to align its fiscal policy with the best outcomes for the children and the country. Well, moving on. Christians are rightly aware that we are God's steward of his stewards of his world. Global warming is, more, is a more important issue than we previously thought so. And so you might be tempted to vote green. That is until you read their manifesto, which, along with other things, legalises drugs, liberalises abortion even further, legalises assisted suicide. And whilst they are vehemently against gen uh, genetically modified crops, they are in favour of genetically modified babies. Or you might be Eurosceptic and you voted out in the referendum and you might feel quite chuffed and vindicated as the media, politicians, academics and others thought you economically illiterate for being a Brexiteer, even though the former governor of the Bank of England also joined you in voting out. Now Mrs May's roots, unlike her previous Conservative and uh, Labour Prime Ministers, um, 
as such that she understands that, quote, honest, hard-working families have been largely ignored and that that is why UKIP partly did so well. They were their voice and she will probably gain votes from both UKIP and from what one might call Methodist Labour supporters. You might be surprised that on a range of moral issues, not all, UKIP are a bit mean on uh, overseas aid, although overseas aid isn't spent on everything you think it might be or ought to be, but they are often closer to Christian values on such issues as abortion. Their leader, for example, thinks the limit should be 12 weeks. On same-sex marriage, which they were against, drugs legalisations, restrictions on gambling, advocates of free speech and church schools, the parental right of withdrawal from sex education. But you have to ask, do they look like they could credibly form a government? So what are you to do if no party grabs you? Well, vote for the party which is the least worst option. Vote for a candidate who you like the look of, their moral kind of, their, their display of common grace, their moral values are closer to uh, your Christian viewpoints and yet their party isn't what you would prefer. Do you make a protest vote? You don't think that a party is going to actually become the government or even get an MP in but uh, you like what they have to say, you vote for them as a signal to the prevailing, the majority parties, that they might all shift in that direction. Whether it's to a green or an orange or a kind of purple colour. Or do you have some other voting strategy of your own? Or do you abstain? That's tempting. Oh, can't be bothered. Lee, I can't work it out. But I don't think abstaining is a Christian option, and I'll tell you why, a few reasons. First of all, this is God's world, and he has put human beings in it to be his stewards. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the land. Now as soon as you have more than one person, you require a political organisation. And there are generally four options, really. Um, there is autocracy, ruled by one, a dictatorship. Oligarchy, ruled by an elite few. Democracy, 51% majority rule. Now, if, you're, if it's proportional representation, that is 51% of the popular vote. If you go for the first-past-the-post system, which is what we have for Parliament, it's 51% of the seats in the House of Commons. And, finally, there is anarchy. No rule at all. Now, to help you identify these different forms of government, let me give you some examples. So, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot are examples of autocracy. They are not particularly good examples. In fact, it's usually quite difficult to find good examples of autocracy because, unfortunately, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely because there are no checks and balances, and eventually they collapse. 
Then there is oligarchy. It's a form of government where the few rule the many. In Saudi Arabia, the few are predominantly royal male princes who are all descended from the founder of the modern Saudi kingdom, King Abdulaziz Al Saud, who, upon his death in 1953, left behind 44 sons and an uncounted number of daughters by 17 wives. And it is the descendants of, the, of his and of those 44 sons. They rule Saudi Arabia. And then there is anarchy. Anarchy is what we had 20 years ago in Rwanda when uh, in the space of three months half a million Rwandese were slaughtered, usually by a machete, because there was no effective government. So, when you look at these alternatives, you may realise why Winston Churchill commented, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except all others that have been tried. But he also said, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. So we should vote because God wants us to play a part in stewarding this world of his. And sadly, it is a fallen world and things go tragically wrong and there's no perfect political party. But God's response to this fallen world is twofold. First of all, he offers government. And secondly, he offers the gospel. So we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study, in case you thought we'd given up on the Bible by not having a reading. So you need a Bible now, and you need to turn to page 1140, to Romans 13. That's 1140. And we'll look at God's provision for government and what it's meant to do. So Romans 13, verse 4, page 1140. Verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone that you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. So governments are meant to maintain law and order and to dispense justice, protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty. In the week that we have seen the atrocity in Manchester, that should be blaringly obvious. And we can see very clearly why we need a strong government with law and order and justice. And that's worth paying for by taxation and by holding the government, the judiciary, the legislature in respect and honour. And the Apostle Peter, if you'd like to turn to page 1218, 1 Peter 2, 
in this brief passage, he concurs with the Apostle Paul. So Peter says in 1 to 13, page 12, 18, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So government, with its maintenance of law and order, is a just restraint on human fallenness and our capacity to do both evil and injustice. And with that backdrop of government to put a break on wrongdoing and to try and achieve order and peace even, Peter goes on to spell out God's number one solution to the fallen world, to the mess that the world is in, and that is the gospel. The same page, but this time verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, by which he means the day of judgment at the end of time. And in the meantime, he wants Christians to be an example of godliness and to provide an explanation for God's take on life so that others might come to be forgiven and glorify God and experience the transformation that he gives to our lives. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Now this raises the question about whether obedience to government is absolute or qualified. Well, if it's not so clear from what he wrote, how did Peter actually live? That might give us the answer. So we turn to uh, Acts 4:18, page 1096. Page 1096, Acts 4:18. And what we've just had there in Acts 4 is Peter and John have just done a most astonishing miracle and a very public miracle. Thousands saw it done, and the two apostles are hauled up in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. We read verse 18 of Acts 4. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The evidence was before their eyes and thousands of others. The fear of God takes precedence over honouring the ruling authority, if the ruling authority goes against God. Seventy-three years ago, one Christian paid the supreme cost for his resistance to a corrupt government, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was known for his staunch resistance to the Nazi dictatorship, including vocal opposition to Hitler's euthanasia programme 
and his genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was arrested in April 1943 by the Gestapo and imprisoned in Tegel Prison for one and a half years. Later, he was transferred to a Nazi concentration camp after being allegedly associated with the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was briefly tried, along with other accused plotters, including former members of the Abwehr, who are the German military intelligence, and then executed by hanging on the 9th of April 1945 as the Nazi regime collapsed. Just two weeks later, Allied forces liberated that concentration camp in which he'd been hung. And three weeks later, Hitler had committed suicide. For Bonhoeffer, obedience to government is qualified and not absolute. But the government needs to be an expression of systematic evil to rebel against it. Because the benefits of a stable government, which maintains order, is beneficial to the advance of the gospel amongst other things. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Paul again, this time if you'd like to turn to his letter to Timothy, his first letter, which you'll find on page um, 1192. 1192, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Writing to this uh, young man, Timothy, who had been a Christian, he'd been brought up, his grandmother and mother were Christians, uh, adult converts, and uh, Paul is giving him advice and direction. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So good government holds the ring, it restrains evil, so the gospel is free to spread by the example and the explanations of Christians. And so millions, if not billions, can reconnect to God through their knowledge of Jesus Christ, whose death alone provides for their forgiveness and eternal life. So if we're commanded to pray for our government, it would seem obvious that if we get the chance to choose them by exercising our vote, we should. In fact, in this development of extending the franchise, allowing more people to vote, the church seems to have been 2,000 years ahead of British society. Turn to Acts 6 on page 1098 and I'll show you what I mean. In Acts 6, when the church had just got off the ground, uh, and they were particularly noted for caring for the widows and the orphans, that uh, the apostles couldn't manage the task on their own. So they needed others in the Christian community to take responsibility for the pastoral care of widows and orphans particularly. So Acts 6.3, this is what they did. Brothers and sisters, they're talking to the Christian community. Choose seven men from among you, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, 
we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose the seven. So, are you going to vote on June the 8th? Are you aged between 18 and 21? Are you a woman? Are you a man but you don't own property that's worth more than £10? If you're in any of those categories, then within living memory, in the lifetime of people that I've known, you would not have had the vote. If you were 18, 19 or 20 when uh, England won the World Cup in 1966, it might astonish you that I think two of the 11 members of that team were not eligible to vote because they were under 21. In fact, I got to vote for the first time in 1971 because in 1969 the franchise had been reduced from uh, um, 21 to 18. I think I voted for the National Ratepayers Association because the bloke who was the candidate lived down the road. But it was a local thing. Now my, my grandmother did not get the vote until 1928 when she was 33. Until then no women of any age or wealth had the vote. That's less than a hundred years ago. My paternal grandfather, who lived in a rented cottage, did not get the vote until 1918, when he was 38. Although men who owned a property to the that was over £10 in value got the vote in 1832. But that only meant that six out of, that meant six out of seven men did not have the vote. That means that most of the people who went to war in the First World War and were killed had no say in electing the government. So it was not until the end of 1918 that men over 21 got the vote. So it is comparatively recent, very recent really, in our British history that there has been universal suffrage for those who are over 18. So why vote? Well, here are some reasons. First of all, as we've seen, it's God's world and he wants us to steward it for him and with him. But it is a fallen world and so God gives the gift of government, which is necessary to maintain peace and justice in a fallen world. We have to get politically organised to do this and democracy is the least worst of the political systems available. Thirdly, God's uh, long-term solution to a fallen world, though, is the gospel of personal transformation. Our opportunity to vote was hard won, and it is a privilege. We ought to exercise it, if for no other reason than, than for those who in the past won it for us. And our vote can make a difference. Um, some of you might remember that uh, we used to have a couple with us called Andrew and Sarah Jones. In 1997, they moved to um, Winchester from Basingstoke. They were well known, because um, as well as for one year working for the church, um, they, they were quite public 
um, members of the Labour Party. But in Winchester, they realised that voting Labour would have been a waste of a vote. So they decided to vote tactically for the Liberal Democrat candidate. The result, the Liberal Democrat got 26,100 votes. The Conservative got 26,098. The Lib Dems won by two votes. Their votes. So, do a couple of things. Well, you could register. Well, you could have done until last Monday. Last Monday was the cut-off. So if you haven't registered to vote, you aren't getting one. But you can vote for when we have another election, which I'm sure we will. Um, not too long. Um, um, and uh, secondly, you can get informed. Um, there are copies of, um, sent to us by the Christian Institute, an election briefing 2017. There are hard copies at reception. Or if we run out, then you can look at it uh, online, christian.org.uk. They analyse um, all the parties' manifestos under a number of categories that Christians would be particularly interested in assessing them by. But let me leave you with a few quotes from one of the greatest Christian political commentators, Edmund Burke, who was an MP in the days of the American War of Independence and the French Revolution. And one from an, a modern American politician, Bill Moyes. The only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. The greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse. Among a people generally corrupt, liberty cannot long exist. Religion is essentially the art and the theory of the remaking of man. Man is not a finished creation. Bad laws are the worst form of tyranny. All tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could do only a little. And more recently, what's right and good doesn't come naturally. You have to stand up and fight for it, as if the cause depends on you, because it does. So, get informed, get a copy of the briefing and whatever other resources you might like to avail yourself of. And take the opportunity that we have to host the hustings for Basingstoke on uh, Friday evening. The doors are open at 7, the questions start at 7.30 and go on till 9.30. It's Friday the 2nd. Um, all the known candidates, the six of them, are expected, are expected and you have the opportunity to grill them. It would be helpful to send in questions in advance. The email address is in the notices. Although think up supplementary questions. If you get the opportunity to have your question put, then you'll probably have the opportunity to ask a supplementary. So imagine what the candidate is likely to say to your question. 
and then have half a dozen questions lined up so that you can use one of them to really nail them because that makes it really interesting evening. Um, so I hope I've said something wrong about every political party going while acknowledging that within their tradition there is something which they have picked up from common grace and which we can affirm. Well, let's pray. And this is a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, which sees the Queen as the representative head of all her ministers and government. And so as we pray for her, we are praying for those to be elected to form her government. Almighty and everlasting God, we are taught by thy holy word that the hearts of kings are in thy rule and governance, and that thou dost dispose and turn them as it seemeth best to thy godly wisdom. We humbly beseech thee so to dispose and govern the heart of Elizabeth, thy servant, our Queen and Governor, that in all her thoughts, words and works she may ever seek thy honour and glory, and study to preserve thy people committed to her charge, in wealth, peace and godliness. Grant this, O merciful Father, for thy dear Son's sake, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.